Well, we welcome everybody to this week's edition of View from the Press Box. I'm Scott Hogan, and joining me is Brad Hallier. And well, Brad, we might as well just go ahead. We got one major band aid to rip off, and another one that's about as major to rip off. So let's let's just get the pain over with. And of course, we'll start with our beloved Kansas City Chiefs um, losing in overtime yesterday. 27-24 to the Cincinnati Bengals to miss out on going to their third straight Super Bowl, and they were in their fourth straight AFC championship game. And before we get into the details, let me start off with this question for you, Brad. Is your, is your bigger headline from yesterday Chiefs meltdown or Bengals comeback? Well, as a Chiefs fan, obviously, I think it's the Chiefs meltdown. Um, I mean, you got to give all kinds of credit to the Bengals for coming back and winning that game. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm i not much of an X's and O's guy, so I don't know exactly if they did some kind of incredible scheme in the second half that the Chiefs just could not figure out. Or, I mean, if we're being honest, Scott, I mean, I think uh, most of the second half problems were on the mental side for the Chiefs. It, the entire well I'm not going to say the entire second half because I'm going to include the last five seconds of the first half were just um, to me still unexplainable um, you just you almost were taken to the, the, this was the Chiefs the first 29 minutes and 55 seconds was the Chiefs that won what they went from three and four and how I many did they win straight before they lost again? Was it a, I think they won like eight in a row, didn't they? Or maybe eight, nine in a row, eight or nine in a row before they lost to Cincinnati. Um, it looked like that team in there. And then the last five seconds and then the rest of the game, it looked like the team that got beat down to three and four at the beginning of the year. It was just, it was unbelievable to sit there and, and painfully watch it unfold because I read one article today that a lot of people will forget because of the success of the last couple, three seasons that the chiefs postseason history is, is abysmal. I mean, they, they went through all of the meltdown, the, what they have, the 20, 20 some point comeback win by the Colts, the, the Lynn Elliott fiasco, the, Dick Vermeil team that didn't stop the Colts one time the entire game. I mean, it just the list went on and on. And unfortunately, we we're going to have to add this to that um, abysmal postseason history. Well, since you started, Scott, we might as well continue it by saying the Chiefs also lost the playoff game where they didn't give up a single touchdown to the Steelers. Steelers. They they, they lost the game to the Broncos that would eventually win the the Super Bowl. Um, 14 to 10 when uh, Elvis Gerbach's headset malfunction at the end. But more than that, they had a phantom penalty wipe a field goal off the board. Uh, a bad call that Tony Gonzalez should have had a touchdown. They had to settle for a field goal. So seven points just, you know, taken off the table right there. And of course we can't forget the meltdown against the Titans where Marcus Mariota threw a touchdown pass to himself. So it's uh, my, my, my PTSD for the chiefs really kicked in, in the second half. I mean, I kept telling myself, you know, we've got Mahomes. This is different, but uh, I, it was just incredible. And, you know, we, we've been saying, um, you know, last five seconds of the second half and all of, uh, or last five seconds of the first half and all of overtime or second half and overtime. But that last drive, actually, until the last couple plays was Vintage Chiefs. I mean, when they got the ball down to the five yard line and the Bengals were out of timeouts, I'm thinking, you know what? I think they're going to win this game now. And I, I, you, you, you had back, I think it was back-to-back sacks. He went from a chip shot field goal. You know, you're thinking, okay, the Chiefs don't get the touchdown here. At least they got a chip shot field goal to an on, on the edge of your seat field goal that Harrison Bucker made for the second straight week. So credit to him. But gosh, it was, it was just perplexing. How do you go from that good, unstoppable, a team that literally could not be beaten, the Chiefs that played for the most that first half were, were an unbeatable team to a team that barely looked like a playoff team. Didn't even look like a playoff team. Well, let's let's dive into some of the game. Let's let's kind of go in go in order where you said it was, you know, it was 21 to 10 
and the Chiefs drive down and they're at the, what was it? I think the three yard line, five seconds left. And they decide um, they were going to send the field goal unit on and Mahomes say, Hey, we got time. Let's, let's run one more quick play. Um, the whole meltdown started there. I mean, if you draw up any scenario, the, the very last thing that you can possibly do without a timeout is throw the ball either parallel to the line of scrimmage or in the field of play when the receiver has no chance to either score or get out of bounds. I mean, the worst case scenario is you, you go up 24 to 10. You, if the first option's not there, you throw it away. You, you kick the field goal, and we might not even be – we might be talking about um, Chiefs and Rams in two weeks, but but we're not. So uh, I just – I heard Mahomes say oh, we got greedy there, but I, I just have no clue of why he threw that pass because Hill had no chance, no chance to get in the end zone. No, and look, look I know that there are all these analytics, and the analytics will probably say go for it there because the chance of winning goes up. But, you know, what the analytics aren't taking into consideration is the, the situation of the AFC championship game. You're up 21 to 10. You've pretty much dominated the half. And here's something I don't think that's really been discussed. The, the Bengals had just scored, Scott. So it was 21-3. They just scored to make it 21 to 10. The Chiefs get a field goal there. Any, any kind of points whatsoever, a field goal there. And I think it pretty much neutralizes the, moment, the, the little bit of momentum that the Bengals suddenly had. Because the Chiefs were getting the ball to start the second half. So they're up 24 to 10. And, okay, maybe they feel like they, they left a few points on the board. But you know what? They still got some points on the board. And I said this before, Scott. The only thing worse than, than getting a field goal in that situation is not getting anything in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I think that even a chip shot field goal, I mean, yeah, you're going to get golf claps. You might run the locker room. God dang it. You know, we could be uh, – this game could be over 28 to 10. But, you know, I think – it was pretty much over at 24-10. I don't think the Chiefs are quite as tight coming out in the second half. I don't think the Bengals feel quite as good coming out at, out in the second half. This isn't to say that I think the Chiefs that the Chiefs were going to win if they kicked the field goal there, but I think that the the complexion of the game completely shifts if they go into the locker room up 24 to 10. They get the ball to start the second half, where even a field goal there makes it 27 to 10. And then I really think it's ball game. Yeah, and like I said, they 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 don't get anything there. They do nothing with the ball to start the third quarter, and then the the comeback begins, um, aided by the Chiefs. He got the Mahomes interception, you know, where he threw at the defensive lineman, um, basically tipped it to himself. Made a great play. I mean, but for a defensive lineman to make that play, it's a great play. But still, that 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 set up a short field. I think that was the touchdown and the two point conversion. If I'm um, remembering correctly, they actually got the game tied. Uh, and again, the Chiefs, uh, with it in that situation, they get an interception out near midfield. And what does the offense do? Three and out again, and they have to punt it. I mean, there was the there was a golden opportunity to at least maybe get in the field goal range again. And it just, I, I still, I don't have an explanation today. Everything was just off. Every pass, Mahomes was right in stride with in the first half was either high and away behind over top of his receivers in the second half. And they, they just could get absolutely nothing going until that final drive after the Bengals have the lead. And let's, let's go to that. They get down there. Like you said, they're at the five yard line and they have run the Bengals out of timeouts. So now you're thinking they could put, they could win it right now. I mean, they, they get into the end zone. Their Bengals are not going to have much time. And then, uh, and explain to me, I know you want to keep the clock running in that situation, but what is Mahomes doing taking not one, but two sacks in a row and going from an, an old style extra point to a 40 yard field goal to just get it to overtime. You know, Pat's Patrick Mahomes obviously made a great, um, name for himself by scrambling around he had a great touchdown pass on sunday where i think he actually uh had the most it was the longest center to to pass touchdown pass of his career like 7.6 seconds so look he, he can do stuff like that but the bottom line is is there in that situation you know you got to and, and i'm sure what part of it was was he's thinking 
you know, I can't throw an interception here. And he may have gotten just a little tight there that, you know, I can't force it. I can't force it. You know, we got to at least give us a chance to kick the field goal, which is good. But, man, to, to go from a chip shot field goal to one that had Chiefs fans on the edge of their seat, uh, it's just, just weird. And I'll tell you what else is weird, Scott, is, you know, the Chiefs averaged almost six yards a carry in that game. I did not realize that, no. I mean, they, they really shredded the 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 Bengals run defense, which pretty much dropped eight the entire game defensively and dared the Chiefs essentially to run. And if you go back and I, I'm not, I'm not going to watch the game again, but I think if you go back and watch that game again, you're going to probably look and say, why didn't the Chiefs run the ball more? Or why didn't they maybe uh, run it on second down? Maybe one of the maybe one of the jet sweeps um, or uh, some kind of maybe misdirection or something to McKinnon. You know, he had a good he had a good game. Edwards Alaire had a good game, but they didn't. And even on one of those pass plays, Mahomes, the pressure didn't come for quite a while. And really, at some point, you've got to either get while you still can get out of the pocket and maybe you've got a chance to run it in or eventually you do have to throw it away. I understand certainly in that situation, you're not forcing one into the end zone and risking not getting the field goal, but you also can't start backing your kicker up seven and 10 yards of play when you had a chip shotter in the beginning. It's just, uh, it's what makes it, like you said, it's a tough one because part of that is what makes him so good. But in that situation, two plays in a row, you just you felt like the it, some something different needed to be done. Yeah, I just uh, it, it, this it, like you said, Scott. This is one that's going to be looked at for a long time by Chief fans, and, and understandably so. Next time, next playoff game we're in, it, it could be as a top seed, it could be as a four seed. Uh, look, I I permanently have PTSD from all those losses through the years. But you know, on one hand. The window, you know, I think we all look at what the Patriots have done. We think that that's the, that's the gold standard for what, you know, everyone strives to be. And it's true. But the fact of the matter is it's very difficult to it's almost impossible to do the, the sustained success that the Patriots have had. And even, you know, I think the other two great dynasties were the, the Steelers of the 70s and the 49ers of the 80s through the mid 90s. Because even look at the Cowboys dynasty, I mean, that didn't really last that long. Three titles in four years, I think, and they didn't make another Super Bowl other than other than those three that they won. So on one hand, you know, you're kind of thinking, okay, you know, is is the current window closing? I, I would say it probably is. You know, they're gonna have to start a new window probably mm-hmm. as soon as possible. You know, you don't want the the Chiefs to make the same mistake that they made after Super Bowl four and let those guys get old and just not replace them. But on the other hand, this number kind of puts it in perspective. It is a bit of an apples to oranges uh, comparison. But Tom Brady, 20 years, 10 Super Bowls. Patrick Mahomes, four years, two Super Bowls. That's 50%. That's not too shabby right now. Now, having said that, like I said, you know, the, the, the window, I think, current window is closing and will be closed, you know, probably next year. So they need to start making some changes already. So I'm trying to keep it in perspective that the Chiefs have had a, re- a remarkable run but you don't get many opportunities like this, Scott. We've talked about this before. Look at the Buffalo Bills. Their mm-hmm. chances ran out. They didn't get it. Aaron Rodgers, you don't get so many chances. Dan Marino never got another chance after playing in a Super Bowl early in his career. You know, John Elway probably thought his chance would never come until really, really, really late in his career. You just don't know if they're ever going to come again. And I'm sure Steve Young thought after, after he won his, he was going to get a couple more. They, you just don't know if it's ever going to come again. We like to think that the Chiefs will. You know, they've got probably the best, the most talented player in the NFL with Patrick Mahomes. But, you know, what we're seeing with the AFC, Scott, there's a lot of good young talent out there. And this isn't and this isn't to say, Scott, that the Bengals should automatically be crowned, you know, as the favorites next year or the Bills as the favorites next year. Because, well, who are we talking about last year at this time as the challengers to the Chiefs? Well, it would have been the, the for sure the Bills. Uh, right. Ravens. Would have been one for sure with Lamar Jackson, um, and I'm probably Cleveland, maybe Cleveland. Yeah, and I think yeah. Woo, there's a train wreck. I probably don't have time to get into Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, but it just they goes were, because they yeah, almost go, Super Bowl. Yeah, it just goes to my point that you know the 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 
the Ravens, after being the Chiefs this year, were probably considered the AFC favorite. And, you know, the the the, the Browns last year were definitely a strong favorite to, to win their division, and, and justifiably so. So let's hold off on the talk of how the Bengals are going to, are gonna you know, and what they can do and how the Bills have this great team. And all. Look, the NFL, man, that's not just National Football League. That's not for long. So we just don't know what we're going to see year to year. I've already looked at the Bengals' schedule. They've got some brutal road games coming up next year. And if they don't improve that offensive line and, and, and in a hurry, they're playing with uh, – they're, they're really rolling the dice and potentially hurting their their star quarterback. So I'm not saying that it's uh, – it is going to be a tough road for the Chiefs to get back to the Super Bowl or even the AFC Championship game, but it always is. The NFL's built this way, Scott. It's built on parity, and we just don't know year to year – Maybe the Ravens come back and they should go 13-3 and three and make it. We just don't know, and that's that's kind of the beauty of the NFL. Well, I mean, you go back in history, and especially the team that makes and loses the Super Bowl, how high a percentage it is that not only do they not get back to the Super Bowl the next year, they don't even make the playoffs the next year. That has happened a lot in the, in the Super Bowl era, the team that loses the Super Bowl misses the playoffs the next year so it's a uh, yeah I, I've often said that's why I was so sick the first year um, that Mahomes never got the football in overtime against Tom Brady because um, you got to catch lightning in a bottle which they obviously did going to the next two and then really should have been in their third straight but but they're not I mean give like you said give the Bengals credit you know the overtime came I think everybody thought with the coin flip oh there's our our light in a bottle and then you have the the lobbed overthrown pass on first down, a slant way behind. The receiver should have been picked on second down, was picked on third down, and the rest was history um, with the Bengals. But um, I guess I would had down Chiefs' future here on my my little cheat sheet for tonight. How aggressive and in what areas of this team do you do you think the Chiefs? should be in the offseason to try to be um, back to this point next year? I've, well, obviously, I've already been thinking about this because our season's over. <laughs> yeah, I, You know, I think for, for the most part, they're pretty good on the offensive line. They're young. They got new players in. I think for the most part, they probably don't need to, to spend or draft much on the offensive line. Maybe, may, maybe you get a late pick draft pick maybe you, you you acquire some depth but i think in general the offensive line is, is set wouldn't mind seeing and i still think mccall harvin could be that number two but let's face it hill and kelsey are not getting younger so mm-hmm. i think maybe a wide receiver could be in order and it's supposed to be a great year for free agency a lot of big name free agents some will be our current chiefs um I think uh, you don't need a running back. I think we saw with uh, with Clyde's Ed- Clyde Edwards Hilaire if he can stay healthy, and, and if not, you know, Jarek McKinnon, not young, but he showed what he can do. I don't think you need to do anything with a running back. I think where most of the changes have to come are on the defensive end. You got, you know, Frank Clark's got to go. I don't think there's any sense in bringing him back. Bring back Melvin Ingram. Bring back Chris Jones. I think you need a, a, a someone a linebacker who can cause all kinds of trouble. You know, that they can rush the quarterback, and you got to beef up that secondary because. You know, I think they have some pieces back there, like Juan Thornhill, and, Ty- and you know, if Tyron Matthew comes back, great. But I think the, the what their main uh, concern has got to be is getting more depth at wide receiver and trying to improve that pass rush. Yeah, how many times in the playoffs, uh, the Bills game or yesterday, did we, did we see um, you know an unmolested quarterback in the pocket? Um, being able to to survey the field and and you give uh, an average NFL quarterback that kind of protection, uh, eventually the secondary is not going to be able to cover. So um, I'm looking at pass rush, um, whether that's from the linebacking position, whether that's uh, um, like you said, maybe releasing Frank Clark, drafting a defensive end or an interior lineman that's can rush the passer. I think that's that's really critical and maybe maybe a shutdown corner or safety, whether that be again through the draft or like you said, maybe through, through free agency. I don't know. Um, I think they're a number two receiver, maybe in order. Um, like you said, with Edward Solaire, McKenna, uh, Daryl Williams. I mean, he was hobbled with that toe, but he's shown how good he can be not just a runner, but a, a receiver as well out of the backfield. So I think they're, they're pretty good over there, but yeah, I think, 
they're I think they need to be aggressive, especially on the defensive side of the ball, and and be able to get more pressure consistently on on the quarterback and be able to to defend better as much man as they like to play on the backside. So that that's where I'd like to see him uh, address things in the draft. Yeah, and uh, the draft and free agency. I, you know, if I was if I were a betting man, Scott, I would say that their first round draft pick is going to probably be from a pass rusher or or defensive back uh, perspective. I I would agree there. So um, the Chiefs season is over, and the Bengals will play the Los Angeles Rams. The Los Angeles Rams, Brad, have never won a Super Bowl. The Rams franchise, of course did win one in St. Louis. They had a come-from-behind victory. Boy, it sure looked like for quite a while the 49ers were going to get the Rams for the third time this season. But, uh, boy, Matt Stafford, this is why they got him, Brad. That's why hey, good they, for him, right? Yo, they, that's why they pulled the trigger and, and swapped Goff for Stafford, brought in o, Odell Beckham Jr., who played very well yesterday. And Cooper Cup is a stud. I think he's – I think we know about him and hear his name all the time, but I still think he's probably the most underrated receiver um, in the league. And the Rams came up big, and then Aaron Donald in the defense, when when they had to get a stop after they got the field goal, they got just that. And um, the early money is on the Rams, and my early money is also on the Rams. Again, for the second straight year, they're going to get a play in their home stadium like the Bucks did last year. But as we saw, uh, certainly do not count the Bengals out. No, I wouldn't count the Bengals out. But that, that, that pass rush, I tell you, if I'm, a, if I'm a Bengals fan, I'm worried sick about that pass rush. Not just, not just from a game perspective, but from, from, a per, from a health perspective of Joe Burrow. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be I, – I, you know, Scott, I, I, would, I wouldn't count out the Bengals. But right now, and I reserve my right to, to change my thinking on this, I think the Rams might win this one easily. You know, and I'm obviously, um, I said at the beginning of the playoffs, there were two things that I wanted. Um, I certainly wanted a Super Bowl without Tom Brady. We've got that. I would wanted one with either or both the Chiefs and the Cowboys. I didn't get that. So without a real horse in the race, I'm just hoping I can sit down and watch a Super Bowl that has been as good as these playoffs, which, again, you saw on Sunday, overtime and uh, a field goal in the last couple of minutes and a defensive stop. That, that's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping that this Super Bowl is as good as the playoffs have been. Yeah, it would be nice to have a nice entertaining finish to the what's been a you know, a bad wild card weekend, a great divisional series, and a great championship weekend. It's actually been a very good postseason for uh, the NFL. Yeah, the, the NFL execs have got to be – the ratings have got to be through the roof for the, these playoffs as good as they have been. So, again, we'll we'll talk more about Rams, Bengals, a little more of the particulars since we now have two weeks or just under two weeks before Super Bowl Sunday. Well, I mentioned a second Band-Aid to rip off, Brad. Um, after several thrilling close wins for the Kansas Jayhawks, the other shoe fell on Saturday as they got thumped at home by Kentucky um, 80 to 62 and just kind of a, uh, that's a non-conference loss, obviously. So they have a half game lead still on Baylor with, uh, a trip to Ames on Tuesday night, number 23, Iowa state. And then at home for aforementioned Baylor, they're still, even after their two home losses, they're still ranked number four, uh, KU, Start well. I haven't seen the recent rankings. I don't know where KU fell. Ten. Um, they're to ten now. Okay, um, but boy, that was just a that was a real thud on Saturday after some of their their great wins earlier in the week. Yeah, especially with College Game Day there. I mean, it was supposed to be a very good uh, atmosphere. It was a great atmosphere, but boy, Kentucky. I mean, um, you know, sometimes I get really angry watching the Jayhawks and I start, you know, questioning their their the heart and all that. But you know what, Scott? I, I just on Saturday, I just like, you know what? Kentucky's just completely outplaying this. I mean, I, I thought most of while Kansas certainly didn't didn't cover themselves in glory. I actually was tipping my hat to Kentucky. They played very well. I thought they they they've got athletes everywhere. That big guy is such a beast in the post. And uh, you know, I think they also really exploited Kansas, a lot of shortcomings that they have right now. And Bill Self addressed a couple of those today. Uh 
he says Remy Martin's only going to be about 60 to 70% the rest of the year unless he decides to rest his knee. And David McCormick, evidently, I forgot he did have surgery in the offseason on his foot. And evidently, uh, Self was saying that's uh, been bothering uh, Big Dave as well. So, you know, I, how much of that is true, I don't know. Uh, obviously, Dave's foot didn't bother him when he's getting 13 and 17 against, uh, you know, Iowa State or whatever game he had that big game or K-State he had a big game. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, for Remy Martin, if he if his, it's supposed to be a bone bruise on his knee, you know, I'm sure that there's some smart doctors out there. If, if those doctors can say, hey, if you sit him for a month and wait until March, you know, he'll be 100% by then. I'm taking the chance on that, man. I'm saying, all right, Remy, we're shutting you down. And, you know, because we want you 100% in March, you know, instead of 60 to 70% the rest of the way. I don't know, but they definitely have uh, – against a very very good Kentucky team yeah it was I don't know if you want to call it almost predictable they had so so many emotional close calls here recently that uh, you know you wondered if there was going to be a letdown at any time like you said you didn't think it would be with college game day and all the hype but it just was and and I would agree with you on Remy Martin if boy you see how good they are when he's at full strength and when he's in there it's just I don't know. It's just a different dynamic than anybody else adds. Just that little extra. He's just a little bit faster, it seems like, than anybody else. His ball movement and his penetration, fantastic. So I think if if that's what it's going to take, you know, shut him down for, you know, maybe the month of February and get that thing healed up 100% for maybe getting back for the, the Big 12 tournament or a game or two right before then, get him ready to go for the big dance because this is obviously a team that, when they have everybody healthy and, and they're, they're firing, they can beat anybody in the country. They, they've done that. We'll see what they do this week. Um, but I, I'm certainly in favor of shutting him down. You know, maybe you lose a game or two along the way because of it. So be it. Uh, what's, your, what's, what's the goal at KU, Brad? I mean, it, it's, it's, it's national title every year. That's Yeah, final, that's, final four national championship contention, right. And yeah. if we're being honest right now, Scott, this team looks like a – at best, Sweet 16 team. Yeah, so um, if you think to make it past that point, your best chance, maybe you even sacrifice your seed. Maybe you go from where you think, hey, we could be a two. Um, maybe even drop to the four line. Uh, that That's not that bad. If you are if you can get 100% healthy, I would do it. Yeah, I would too. Um, and I'm sure with the surgery that David McCormick has, if he's still feeling the effects of it, there's probably nothing he can do about that. But I think we've seen that Remy Martin is probably, you know, David, David obviously is the X factor we talked about all along, but they need Remy Martin. Uh, Kansas is a, you know, first weekend, second weekend team at best team without Remy Martin, but with a healthy Remy, Remy Martin, it's, it's a national championship contender. So again, KU this week, um, Tuesday night, they're at Iowa State, and Saturday, home to Baylor. Of course, all those games you can listen to on 94.7 KSKU. Well, the Sterling men and women went up to Kansas City this past Saturday and had quite a battle. I'm trying to remember if we – when we recorded last week, had they? Do you remember, Brad? Had they played Kansas Wesleyan at this point, or or? No, we recorded on Wednesday last week. Okay, so they they started off at home against Kansas Wesleyan, and just gradually and just consistently pulled away from Kansas Wesleyan. Got a big lead. Kansas Wesleyan was able to get it cut back in the neighborhood of fourteen points, but Sterling went on and. And, and won by 16, did a great job holding down uh, the big for Kansas Wesleyan, Kelsey Hens, who has had a couple of career games um, against the Lady Warriors. And they did it against Kansas Wesleyan, Brad, despite shooting one of 14 from the three-point line, they were still able to get in the paint, score in the paint, and they had the scoring. And this is you know, you like, you love seeing the Bailey Albrights of the world go for the 25 and all that, but let me get the, I'm on the wrong page here. 74-58 was the final. Let me get the stats pulled up here. I love the way in these tighter, a little bit lower scoring games, 
they have scoring like this. Taya Wilson, you know, and, and when they lost to Kansas Wesleyan, their only loss this year in overtime back in Salina, Taya had some foul issues and fouled out when they had the lead with about four minutes to go and they ended up losing in overtime. I think she really took that on her shoulders. 19 points, 15 rebounds, five blocks, four steals, three assists. As she just, I, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind watching the intensity that Taya Wilson played her 29 minutes with. She was, you know, and she had no reason to think that she was any reason that they lost that first game, but boy, she atoned for it big time. And then the, the scoring spread out 12 for Bailey Albright, 12, for Corinne Clayson, and eight for Stucky, seven for Hendrickson. So again, even just one of 14 from the three-point line, they still did all the rest of the little things. They forced 24 Kansas Wesleyan turnovers while committing only eight. They only had one in the first half. They did all the rest of that so well that even without the three-point shooting, they still got a comfortable win over a really good team. Yeah, it's not every day that that, uh, that kid from – Kansas Wesley and the Kelsey, how do you say her last name there, Scott? Hens. Yeah, it's not every day where she's outplayed in, in the post like that, right? No, definitely yeah. not. And, 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 you know, if, if, if you're, the, if you go up against her and you're the, and, and you're the, the best post player on the night, you've done something special. And Taya Wilson left no doubt on that night that she was the best post player, not, not just on the floor, but probably in the league that night. I mean, my goodness. And not just the 19 and 15 and 5. She had four steals and three assists, too. Shot, you know, eight, 8 out of 16 from two-point range. She had a couple free throws. I mean, that's as close to a perfect game as you can play for, for if, if you're someone like Taya Wilson. Yeah, she just – she stepped up huge. And, again, with the, the, we had the – it was the Monday, Thursday, Saturday week for Sterling. So, they had the short turnaround, the long trip, and early start up in Kansas City on Saturday. And – they started off horribly in this game. They got down eight to one and got outscored in the first quarter, 12, 18 to 12, and then picked it up um, in the second quarter uh, near even in the third. And then in the fourth quarter, this was a game. It was half court. It was uh, physical uh, coach Bassett um, people watching the video. She spent a lot of time walking behind the bench. She was so frustrated with calls going against her team, but down in crunch time, a one-point game um, back and forth under a couple minutes to play. Sterling made seven of their last eight free throws at the foul line, went on and won over a really good Avila team, 61-54, to 54. and here we go again. Emily Hendrickson, 14. Corinne Clayson, who really, I think she had 11 or all or 13 in the first half and added seven rebounds to really keep them in the game when everybody else was struggling. Wilson, another double-double, 13 and 11. And then 10 for Bethany Stuckey and eight rebounds. The scoring was spread out, and they held Avila to five of 36 from the three-point line. I, I it's rare to see that many attempts, but then just to hit five of them. And what Sterling always tries to accomplish, they made more free throws, 18, 18 out of 23, than Avila attempted at 16. And that ended up being the difference. Well, I think it was Coach Krzyzewski who's often said that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the goal. You want to it, when when you make more free throws than the other team shoots, uh, you're probably I don't know what the analytics will say, but I'm going to guess you probably win somewhere the, of the, in the neighborhood of about eighty percent, if not more. That's just a stat that you if if you succeed in that, I mean, it doesn't really matter which percentage the other team shoots because you it, it's just you, that means you're you're the aggressor, you're getting to the foul line a lot more, you get more attempts, probably getting some and ones, etc. And it just also goes to show uh, when you look at the stats in the game, just how uh, once again, and we've known this all along that any one of these girls can step up and be the the scorer. I mean, Emily Hendrickson, one one game after Taya Wilson had her big game. You know, Emily goes out with 14 points, hit a three pointer. You know, three three free throws, two assists, one steal. I mean, it's just the it, it can be any of these girls on any given night. Well, the men, we won't go into much detail against Kansas Westland for the second time, just gets destroyed 99 to 64 uh, by the Coyotes. Uh, uh, Brad, they may have had that opportunity 
slip out of their fingers on Saturday to get that first conference win is they actually had the last possession of the ball game down one and got a shot blocked right before time expires to fall 65 64 um, to the Avila Eagles. And again, Darian Reed leads them with a double double 17 points, uh, 10 rebounds, three assists. Also, Nick Price, Jalen Jackson, each with 14. But what I, I guess what I'm trying to decide from this game, Brad. It's it was fantastic to finally see them be in the end um, against kind of a, a Avila middle of the pack team, but to be in there in the end, have a chance to win. But I'm also wondering what the mental effect of being there, feeling like you could have, maybe should have won the game, and you don't. Do you, th- from a mental aspect, do you think that's a good or a maybe even a detriment to this Sterling team? Oh, boy, Scott, I hate to say it, but it's probably a detriment. I mean, to be that close to, to that elusive win and watch it snatched away from you, it, it's just got to be oh, – I, I can't imagine. It just has to be heartbreaking for those guys to be that close to a win and to say, hey, we finally got one. Let's see if we can build off this. And they're really going to test their mental, their mental state after this one. But I'm looking at the box score from, from Saturday, Scott, and, boy, you know, we talk about the little things a lot. And, you know, Sterling get, had, were, had give up six more offensive rebounds. They were out-rebounded, out-rebounded by five. Avila had one more block shot. Uh, they had, let's see, three fewer turnovers. Because uh, most of the stats, uh, you know, shooting-wise were pretty, were pretty close. And we just factor in a lot of those little things, a lot of those other stats like that. Ah, man, it just each up, you know, it's just one more offensive or one more defensive rebound that, you know, turned into an offense rebound and maybe a putback for Avila or something like that. You know, maybe just ha- handling the, the ball uh, on one more possession and, and getting a layup or a couple free throws off it. I mean, is that the stuff just all adds up? Yeah. So I, I, I'm almost along with you that you like to think, well, uh, given the confidence, hey, we know we can win, but also to be that close, you just wonder. Boy, if that's really going to sit on them really hard is is this week. It's uh, three straight at home now, not just this week, but extending into next week. It'll be Wednesday, Saturday, Bethany and on Wednesday and Bethel on Saturday, two of the top teams um, on the men's side. So it's going to be a tough, tough stretch here for the Sterling men. And then as far as the women, Bethany, that was a 10-point game. In Lindsburg, Bethany is a, more of a post-oriented half-court team this year. Those are the teams that can sometimes uh, give Sterling trouble. Hannah Ferguson, strong post player. Um, and then Saturday, Bethel is a team that just had that unreal third quarter and second half three-point shooting in North Newton earlier in the season. And again, the ladies got down in the fourth, were able to um, do all those little things. They came back and won again. Sterling with a three-game lead with six conference games remaining, and their nearest competitor Tabor that's three games behind. They have the head-to-head, so um, it's a it's a big week. Those are going to be tough games at home, but I, I think the Lady Warriors. What I'd like to see, they've had a couple of games where they've really not shot the ball from three land. Um, as well as we know they're capable of, like to see a few more of those going in. Um, but still, pretty good feeling about this week's games. And it's kind of hitting that kind of the dog days of the season too, Scott. Uh, you know, maybe the legs uh, are slightly tired. I mean, looking at the schedule, you know, they had three games last week on Monday, Thursday, Saturday, and that doesn't even throw into account the game on the twenty second. So they actually played four games in, in eight days. So. Yeah. You can maybe understand why maybe it was a little bit maybe fatigue perhaps i'm not trying to make excuses or anything but it's definitely in the realm of possibility not the deepest team in the world uh, as we know as we well know also so maybe three straight home games you know uh and actually four of their next five are at home so you know definitely an opportunity to get their legs back underneath them play some home games against some good competition because you know that keith ferguson you know the bethany coach he's always going to make it tough i mean that guy just He's a good coach, and he always has his team ready, and you know that he would nothing, love nothing more than to bump off Sterling. Yeah, and, you know, he's playing for positioning, too, for the postseason tournament. They're right right behind Tabor, so this is a really big game for Bethany 
Again, those uh, games can be heard 95-9. It'll be 6 and 8 o'clock, the tips on Wednesday, 5 and 7 for the tips against Bethel on Saturday. And just keep your nose to the wire on Wednesday. I know we're supposed to have maybe – I don't know that the snow is going to be real heavy in this area. I think further south it's going to get worse. But um, if there's any uh, postponements or game time changes for Wednesday. Well, um, add Astra schedule, Brad, for this week. The one thing, we're going to go back to uh, midseason tournament weeks a little bit after uh, this first topic. Uh, I was looking at the Bueller schedule, Brad. This this schedule is absolutely brutal they've been playing. They just came off of the Heston game. <laughs> they recently had McPherson. So all they have to do this week is Tuesday go to Collegiate and then host Andale on Friday. I mean, this is this is unreal. And Bueller now has suffered their second loss. Um, they lost to Heston um, this past Friday night. So uh, at Collegiate, boy, that's a tough one to try to rebound off of a loss for sure. Yeah, and Coach Ryan Swanson, I don't, I don't know how much say he gets in, in the scheduling because obviously you got the girls to consider also. But uh, he, he's always he's never been one to shy away from a tough schedule. Uh, going back to his days at Hutchinson Community College, Garden City, I remember at, at Hutch, he would always bring in as good teams as possible. I mean, he would bring in, you know, teams that would win the national championship or, you know, won the national championship, you know, Arkansas, Fort Smith and, and Midland and schools like that. And so he's, he's, the, he's not one that's going to shy away from a challenge. And you look at the standings right now and boy, you got four teams just right there at the top jostling, you know, Pratt 11 and two, Beeler 10 and two, Andale nine and three, Abilene 10 and four. And then right behind me, you got a trio of eight and five teams. So uh, it, it, it's going to be a dogfight for those top four seats. Cause obviously the top four, will be hosting throughout the entire sub-state tournament. So it's definitely something that if you're Beeler, you know, you've got some quality wins this year and you got an opportunity again this week. And I think that Andale game could really go a long ways because uh, that you would give them a potential tiebreaker as well. Yeah. So it, I, I just, that just jumped off the page to me because I've just seen the night after night here in the last couple of weeks for Beeler, they've just been, you know, at Salina tournament and, and then Heston and then now collegiate Andale is just, crazy to see um, such a tough schedule um looking at the rest of our schedule that's really the ones that kind of jumped off the page to me where the bueller games we're going to have uh canton galva at little river on friday night um boy brad uh, yeah i'd like to think somehow the girls game would be competitive i haven't come up with a way yet <laughs> uh. Uh, Canton galva struggled minorly in the fairfield tournament which little river won um, that tournament easily on the girls side the boys game maybe a little more potential there um for 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 a good ball game but boy, little little river girls um boy they're they're rolling right now yeah it's uh they they went out and dominated that tournament and uh and frankly you know a team of their caliber you would kind of expect them to, to do that and and they did just that so it was definitely a um a, a good thing for the little river and and boy yeah, you talk about Canton Galva. I saw they lost twenty six to five, I think, to to Gossel. Did, did I did I did I see that right? Um, it was yeah, twenty eight to five. They had they made two field goals the entire game, and I believe Gossel was o of what did I think 16. I saw oh sixteen from the free throw line. I mean that was just oh brutal. Um, that was yeah. brutal. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen over o of sixteen before from the free throw line. I mean, usually you just get uh I don't know, one or two of them to bounce in. I've never seen anything like that before. And then I believe it was, I think it was Friday night, the Bueller girls are down 37 to one at halftime to Heston. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> boy, we, 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 we've seen some rough games recently. Little River played Stafford in that Fairfield opener. And um, by the mid to late first quarter, um, Brent Clark was telling his team every time they got a rebound or a steal to just stop and let everybody clear out and then go across half court because it, it, it I mean, the handwriting was on the wall of what that game was going to be like. And he just, he, he didn't want to run it up or anything. So he, he pulled them back real early in that game so that you, you can get that sometimes in some of those um, early rounds of some of those tournaments. Yeah. Unfortunately we do see that from time to time. And, uh, uh, you know, we saw that with uh, Nickerson and Rose Hill 
And, you know, but that's, you know, that's kind of that, you know, all these kids want to play in these midseason tournaments. And sometimes you just get mismatches like that. Uh, you know, I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's just, uh, you know, you got to fill that tournament field somehow. And, you know, some teams are going to play in good tournaments and some teams are maybe it's just a little bit too advanced for them. But I, I think that's OK. Well, you mentioned the Wildcat Classic. Um, you were there Thursday. I was there Friday and Saturday for the semifinals and finals. And, well, I tell you what, Brad, I, I left that tournament being super uber impressed with the Cheney Lady Cardinals, Brad. They blew out, not just beat, blew out Nickerson on Friday night. They had led by 25 at halftime. 35 to 10. Ava Jones picks up her third foul with about three minutes to go in the first quarter. And uh, that Sheeney zone defense just smothered the guards of Nickerson and they could get nothing done. I think Nickerson, the closest they got in the second half, I believe was 12 or 13 points. But Sheeney such good guard play and they've got four bigs that they can just rotate in and out. They just made it miserable for Nickerson. And then they turn around and just absolutely destroyed Andale in the championship game on Saturday. Um, boy, I was, I said that Nickerson Cheney um, semifinal game, we could be seeing that matchup again. They're in the same sub state over there. And Nickerson the first week of March, but right now, well, I tell you, Cheney almost looked unbeatable this last week. You know, it's all, it's all, they lose Kylie Shear, you know, one of the best players in Kansas. And uh, it's, it's easy to think, okay, they lost a girl that can score, you know, 23, 24 points a game going to Emporia State. They're, they're going to take a little step back. And, and in some ways, you know, maybe they have, you know, they got three losses, but when you look at who they've lost to, Wellington, Sterling, Garden playing. They haven't lost to any slouches out there, Scott. They've got girls on that team, not who are not only you know good basketball players, long, athletic, good shooters, and all that. Let's let's not forget a lot of these girls won a state championship last year. They know what it takes, and you know don't think for a second that some of those girls aren't thinking. Oh, you know people are writing this off because we don't have Kylie Shear anymore and and have a little chip on their shoulder. Don't don't think for a a moment that those girls don't think that. uh, You know, some people had written them off. It's it's a good team. And uh, boy, that that if uh, they end up playing for the Substate Championship, that is going to be uh, an incredible atmosphere over in Nickerson. Yeah, beyond Nickerson's home court, if that is the matchup. Hey, Bryn McCormick, um, the guard for them, she she lit it up in those two games in the semis and the finals from the three point line. She she looked really really good in those those games. But again, I, I was so impressed with the depth they they played. Well, it was either nine or ten, and boy, they don't lose much at all when they go to their bench. And boy, you just can't say that about very many teams. But with their depth and their size and their shooting, it's not a team I would want to see. No, except for maybe Nickerson to show, hey, you know, you guys last time, now it's our turn. You know, we're going to have Ava Jones the entire game this time. She was in foul trouble pretty early, but uh, but no, you're yeah, you're right. They're they're going to make life pretty miserable for a lot of teams that they play this year. Again, um, uh, my, my final thoughts, um, we're going to go back, and you, you know where I'm going to go with this for my final thoughts, but we'll, we'll go back to the Wildcat Classic here in just a moment. Um, one other, well, I don't know if I call this a headline or not because nothing is official about it, is all sources are pointing towards Tom Brady is going to retire, but yet he has not made anything official. Now they're they're speculating that he's not he's going to wait and not try to upstage the Super Bowl if he truly is going to retire. Um, that, so that announcement may not come for another couple, three weeks. But I, I, most sources are saying that is certainly the way he is leaning, Brad. So I wanted to go in uh, and we could have a really long conversation on this. You know, almost everybody you hear talk about um, Tom Brady is he's maybe not just a, some will say he's not just the greatest quarterback of all time. He's the greatest player to ever play the game. Um, I'm going to preface this and I'll let you jump in. I think I know where you'll go, but Tom Brady, in, in, in my eyes, he is certainly, he, this cannot be argued. He's the most accomplished quarterback to play the game. Seven Super Bowl rings that, 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 that is just the most anybody has ever accomplished in the sport. 
um, of professional football, the greatest of all time. And this is a lot to the eye test and what I have seen. I'm still sticking with Broadway, Joe Montana. I just, <laughs> from what I saw of Montana in the four Super Bowls that he won and during his career, he was just near perfection and never was there the speculation of cheating around Joe Montana that there was with the Patriots over the years and around Brady and Bilicek. So that's where I go. I certainly, hands down, Brady's the most accomplished. I'm still going to give Montana the nod at this point for the, the GOAT, the least, the best that I believe that I have seen. If I'm being honest, and we're all friends here, Scott, this almost smells a little orchestrated to me. I'm sorry. I'm just just giving my two cents here. It almost feels orchestrated that Adam Schefter comes out with the report. He's sticking by it. And now Brady's saying, not so fast, my friend. It almost feels orchestrated to me, like Cristiano Ronaldo-like. It's like, I got to be the center of attention here. I, I, look, I, I, I know that this is a conspiracy theory coming out in me, but it just feels a little orchestrated to me. Now, going back to your point about who the true GOAT is, there's no questioning what Tom Brady has accomplished. And, and frankly, we're probably never going to see it again. Uh, Ten Super Bowls, seven championships with two different franchises. It's it's just something we – and playing as well as he did late in his career uh, – but we also have to compare eras, and that's that's almost impossible to do. Not just with you know the rules and all that, but even with things like sports medicine. You know, Joe Montana missed almost two entire seasons in the early '90s with injury. He almost missed an entire season. I think it was 1987 due due to injury, and you know things that maybe could have been you know fixed a little bit quicker with modern medicine and, and advances in technology and stuff like that. But also, I want to just, and this isn't to disparage Tom Brady in any way. I'm just kind of throwing this out there about the true greatness of Joe Montana. First of all, four Super Bowls, four championships, three MVPs, no turnovers, no interceptions, no fumbles. That is just staggering. And, of course, the one game he wasn't MVP in, hey, there's John Candy over there game. So yeah. <laughs> just, just simply remarkable. And, and I want to also throw this in there, Scott. Look at the era Joe Montana played in with the NFC. You had Ditka's Bears. You had Lawrence Taylor's Giants. You had Joe Gibbs's Red Washington Redskins. You had the, the L.A. Rams were good back then. You know, we don't hear much about the, those Rams teams because they had to play against the 49ers. But that was a golden era in the, in the NFC. I mean, just simply remarkable how how deep and how balanced that was. Uh you know, the Cowboys weren't any good, obviously, back then, but you still had an awful lot of good teams. And we're not talking about just good teams. You know, you can make the argument that the 85 Bears were the greatest uh, team in NFL history. You know, the the, the uh, Joe Gibbs won, what, three Super Bowls with three different uh, quarterbacks? Just remarkable. And, of course, the Giants with Lawrence Taylor were always a, a contender. But, and gosh, the NFC was just a powerhouse back then. And for Joe to come out there with four Super Bowl titles, unscathed, no turnovers. I just don't think we can fully comprehend how great that is. Yeah, and I, I've always brought up the fact that you know uh, Brady, you, you couldn't you couldn't touch him basically for the vast majority of his career, or it was a flag. Um, and you go back and watch some of the film. One of the most brutal hits I've ever seen, and I don't remember the name of the deep the Giants lineman. They show this often that came through and just destroys Montana in one of the old films that you see sometimes. It just was, like you said, a different era of when a quarterback was uh, was just another football player, and those guys just got destroyed on hits that probably 90% of now or more would be 15-yard penalties and, and potential ejection with the way they were getting smacked up around the head back then. So I think it made – even what Montana did even more special, but I guess it all boils down to at the end of the day, gut feeling. Do you think that he's going to hang it up? Yes, I do. Um, now, having said that, I, I, if you only put a percentage on it, I'd say about 75, 25. I do think that in hindsight, uh, he probably should have hung him up last year going out on top and all that. Um, Look, Father Time's undefeated, and obviously Brady had a great year this year. He could be the league MVP, 
But Father Time is undefeated. And I don't know if maybe he's sensing something. You know, we can always talk about the family and all that. And, and that's that's fine. If he wants to say that he needs to spend more time with his family, that's great. But Father Time is undefeated. I don't know if maybe he's starting to sense it maybe a little bit right now. And he just doesn't want to go out the way, you know, uh, Joe Namath did with the Rams and, and, and you know, the, uh, people like that. I, I too, think that he's going to retire. And, and, and I do I, – I think the family has a ton to do with it. I did not realize that um, his wife had actually threatened him with divorce a few years ago, um, that they – fortunately, they were able to go to counseling – and, and get some things ironed out. But I, I told my wife, I said, to play at the level that he has continued to play at year after year for 22 years, that is your life, Brad. I mean, the off season, you're at the training facility with your personal trainer, you're working out, you're, you're with getting together with your teammates, you're going over, um, getting, getting with the new guys that you drafted or free agents that come in. And things get sacrificed, and unfortunately, that's family a good portion of the time. And I, I think that, um, I think it's well known that his wife Giselle told him after he won the Super Bowl last year, she just flat said, "What else do you have to prove?" And I, I really think the pull of that, and that he doesn't have anything else to prove. I don't think to anybody. Um, makes me think that once all this, like you said, there could be a little of this being orchestrated. I wouldn't put it past his camp or whatever, but I do think in the end that we probably have seen him play his last game of football. And if so, you know, obviously we're, we're going to look back at and say, Hey, we, we, we watched Tom Brady play a lot. And I still hold Joe Montana in the highest, highest regards, but you know, I'm also one. That as much, and I even felt like this about John Elway late in his career. That hey, you know, you got to respect someone who is that accomplished and has beaten your teams and is that good. It it, it made me want to vomit, you know, saying this about John Elway of all people. But yeah, credit where it's due, man. The guy went to five Super Bowls and he won a couple. I enjoyed the other three a lot more. I will say, <laughs> when his teams got crushed. But yes, uh, that, that's probably a, again a topic. Um, for another day so that is the last of our uh, regular topics so we can move on um, to final thoughts all right scott i'm going to revert back to title nine stories 50 years of title nine and just kind of want to share some of my favorite stories of covering women's athletics high school or junior college otherwise uh, through the years i'm going to go back to 2011 when hutchinson community college was playing a soccer game on on a on an nfl sunday against the rivals Butler. Now, it's still a rivalry, but not to the extent it was back then. There, there was a time for maybe, oh, maybe five or six years where I, gen- and, and where I genuinely thought that Hutchinson-Butler's soccer rivalry was the best rivalry in the Jayhawk Conference, not just in soccer, but for all sports. There was genuine disdain there. I mean, bordering on anger and hatred for one another. I mean, it was intense. There was even games where uh, where Hutchinson was at home playing Johnson County. And Johnson County, keep in mind, was a contender as well. And Butler players would show up and openly cheer for Johnson County. Just that's how intense it was. That's how much disdain that there was where, you know, Butler players would essentially be rooting for Johnson County, even if it was against uh, their own uh, best interest. Well, anyway, in 2011, they, they met on a Sunday afternoon, NFL Sunday after, afternoon. It was raining. It wasn't overly cold, but it was raining. And there was some 250 people to watch junior college women's soccer on a rainy NFL Sunday in one of the greatest games I've ever seen in any sport. Hutchinson won 2-1. to one. Butler scored first. Hutchinson would tie it and then scored on a late mistake by the Butler goalkeeper. Slipped when she took a free kick. And went right to Hutch or uh, one of Hutchinson's best players. She shot it 30 yards into an empty net. The collective dogpile, the screaming, the excitement, it was something else. And then after the game, the coaches got into it. Uh, Hutchinson, Sammy Lane, and Butler's Adam Hunter, who is now my daughter's coach at, at Butler, uh, got into it. They were yelling at each other. Uh, <laughs> I only heard, you know, offhand what was said between them or what caused it all. It, I, I'm not really going to get into it. But boy, Scott. To see this kind of drama in a junior college women's soccer game, to see that many people on an NFL Sunday 
come out and watch a junior college women's soccer team in the middle of Kansas. It was just remarkable to see that kind of support for women's athletics on a rainy Sunday where the NFL is playing. Well, how, how many years ago was this now? This was 2011. So this, uh, this fall will be the 11th year anniversary of that game. The only thing that could have made it better is if it had been a little bit longer ago where it was on grass and they were playing in the mud. Well, actually, the game was on grass because Hutchinson does play on grass. Okay, was a little it, a little bit of a mud bowl then. Yeah, it, it was. And uh, as a matter of fact, there's a great picture taken by, uh, I bel- I can't remember if it was Sandra Milburn uh, of the Hutch News or someone else, uh, or Travis Morrissey or Lindsey Bauman. Uh, one of them took a great picture of the dog pile. And actually, you can see a lot of the girls have mud on their, on their jerseys. So, I mean, it wasn't a mud bowl by any stretch, but there's a lot of divots and whatnot out there. So... It absolutely uh, was just a remarkable uh, day. And just looking back to see that kind of support again for women's athletics on a rainy day like that was remarkable. That, that is, that's a fantastic story. Like I said, it makes it even better that it was on the natural service and you get a little bit of, a little bit of mud <laughs> in the end there to, I guess you could rub it in a little bit. Ha ha on that. <laughs> Well, I mentioned earlier, Brad, and um, the Wildcat Classic over at Haven this year, it had one of the most emotional tournaments that we'd ever seen. I think most people know, but those who do not, you were over there on Thursday, had a, a triple header, and your final game that day was Andale and Haven, which turned into a really good game, won by Andale 37 to 32, and then I... Um, I get up, I'm getting some stuff together, starting to look at the games I've got over there on Friday. And you text me that the longtime head coach, and I think he'd been at Andale for 13 years, Ted Anderson, who had coached and won that game that night, had suddenly passed away that night. And just everybody was in shock in the Andale community and in that tournament. And it was not known for a while that day whether Andale, um, what was going to happen, they were supposed to play Garden Plain, um, kind of a little bit of a rival in basketball for them in the semifinals. Um, I got there still not knowing um, if that it wasn't a game that we had on our schedule, but they said when they got there, said, yeah, they had all gathered together and decided that they were going to play. Brad, the scene that night about halftime, third, into the third quarter of – the Cheney Nickerson game when the Andale fans were coming in, Brad, I I don't think I've ever seen or felt anything. There was people walking in hand to hand in tears coming into the facility. There was hugs and tears were just flowing um, for coach Anderson and his family and that community. And Andale plays an inspired game and wins by 10 now they turn around on saturday and and this was not unexpected brad they were just they were flat they were completely out of gas when they played cheney um for the championship of that tournament and to be expected everything they had gone through um in 24 hours was was just unbelievable and i i I visited with coach uh cody castleman who coached against andale on Friday night for garden playing. And he, he just said, he said, I don't really have any words. He said, I have never coached in a game like that in my career. He says, and I hope I never do coach in another game under those circumstances. He said his heart just went out to them. And it was, it was a scene and, and I'm sure this is going to be a a brutally tough week. I'm sure the services are this week and and such an integral part and just, just to see that happen. He's a young man, Brad. I didn't realize he was 52 years old. I thought he was a little bit older than that, but, um, and you got to visit with him on uh, Thursday before the game. And every time that I visited, which was just a few times with coach Anderson, he was the nicest man you could visit with. He said, well, if you need anything else, I'm available after the game or get with one of my assistants. He was just the most congenial, easiest person to work with. And, and our, our thoughts and prayers certainly go out to his family um, and that community, it, again, it was, I, I don't think I've ever seen a scene like that at a high school basketball game. Yeah, that was, um, just, just an utter shock. I mean, there, 
Thursday night, you know, before the game, I go down there to, to Coach Anderson to get pronunciations, and we talk for a couple minutes about the game and all that and tournaments. And uh, he, he always took care of you, Scott. And I'm saying this as a member of the media. He always took care of you. He was never above helping the media. I mean, sometimes you get to some schools, and it's like pulling teeth to, you know, trying to get any kind of information. Uh, it's Maybe it's even pulling teeth just to get a spot to broadcast from sometimes. But not with Ted Anderson. He made sure that you were taken care of as a member of the media. And that was never, that never went. I mean, last year, first round of state, I'm down there broadcasting in Andale, their first round state tournament game. And there they are, you know, warming up, getting ready for state. And he's making sure I've got everything I, I need. I, I've got, <laughs> hey, do you need a water, Brad? Uh, I, I can get you one. Ted, you got, you got state to worry about right here, man. Don't worry about me. So, uh, but that's just the kind of guy he was. You know, he wanted to make sure that everything was in, was in order. He wanted to make sure that everybody was comfortable. He wanted to make sure that things were going on without a hitch. You know, a, a former uh, editor and mentor of mine, Pat Sangimino, whenever someone like this would come around, you know, a, a person like Ted Anderson, he would simply say he knows how to play the game. And he's mm-hmm. right. Ted Anderson knew how to play the game of life and just being that coach. And he realized that his job wasn't just to coach players. He knew it went beyond that. It was taken. Okay. Radio's here. I got to make sure they got what they need now. And he was more than happy to do that. Definitely. Just, I couldn't believe it when I heard the next day is actually um, one of my students uh, who, uh, who did color with me that night, uh, Colin Shields had actually, because uh, one of his teammates at the Juco is Darby Roper from haven and he actually heard from him about 8 30 hey did you hear about ted anderson he texted me he's like brad uh the andale coach died last night i was like what and Mm. so i go to you know i go to twitter to confirm it and uh i was just in shock i couldn't believe it i mean there he was coaching a a wonderful game you know between andale and haven and just man life is precious that's about all all i can say about it yeah, when, when you texted me, I was like, what? I mean, I, I probably was babbling in my text. It's like, what, did he coach last night? Was he sick? I mean, what? Ha- I mean, I uh, I was just in kind of disarray. It's like, it, this, 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 this can't be right. And, and unfortunately, it was. And like you said, yeah, um, life is precious. And that just, um, yeah. But I, I guess the best thing that we, we can do, certainly right now just just pray for him and his family and that community it's going to be a a tough week and and certainly a a tough rest of the season but uh yeah that what a what an emotional win they had on um, friday night and again just again couldn't crank her up on saturday which was um completely understandable but again um ted anderson passing away at 52 years of age so again, um, if you want to see this week's another busy week on Ad Astra, you can go to adastraradio.com. In the sports page, the whole schedule is posted up there for this week. But for this week's View from the Press Box, for Brad Hallier, this is Scott Hogan. God bless. We'll see you next week.